Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 125, August 7th to August 13th, 1863. Last week, we went over the continued campaign in Virginia. Lee has been able to move back into a defensive line, escaping Meade yet again. We also had two more engagements against the Sioux. Remember, we are setting up poor relations that will lead to further conflict in the 1870s. This week, we need to talk about the New York draft riots, so we will go into a little gains of New York territory here for a bit. Before we do that, though, we need to talk about Lee's resignation attempt. And before we talk about Lee, we do need to talk about some Patreon content, and of course, this month, we are doing another movie review. We're doing the movie Glory, and that should be posted here by the time of this episode release, so if you want to check out the movie review of Glory, one of the better Civil War movies out there, then go ahead and check out the Patreon. The link is in the description. Of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. They are greatly appreciated. Next month, we're going to be doing another movie review. This one's going to be Ride with the Devil. And uh, also, we need to, at least in the near future, talk some Gangs of New York at least a little bit. I'm not sure we do a whole entire episode, but obviously we're talking about the draft riots here today, and there are, of course, the draft riots depicted in that movie, so we'll probably have to talk about that as well at some point. But if any of those things sound good in terms of what's coming up, then by all means, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. In order to really get a vibe of the resignation, we will read the letter that Lee sends. It is important, though, first to talk about the attitude of the public after Gettysburg. There are many in the modern era who consider Gettysburg a turning point. If you know anything about the Civil War, you probably know Fort Sumter, Gettysburg, Appomattox, and very little in between, unfortunately, but you probably have heard of Gettysburg, Gettysburg being the turning of the tide for the Confederacy, the high watermark, hear that as well. It may surprise you to know that this was not the case in 1863. While the Union did see a subsiding of support for Democrats, there was not really a whole lot of change. We see Lincoln is more upset about what happens after the battle than anything else. The South did not see the battle as a huge defeat, just a minor setback and there was still faith with Robert E. Lee as the commander. The army and the public would throw their lot in with the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia. It should be also mentioned that the Ewell-Hill-Longstreet combination would really not work out in the long run, which is also important and a negative for Lee. But there was going to be some criticism of the Gray Fox, especially in the Southern press, and obviously the loss weighed on the older general. Remember, the strain of command is detrimental to his health. Here we have his tender. Mr. President, your letters of July 28th and August 2nd have been received, and I have waited for a leisure hour to reply, but I fear that will never come. I'm extremely obliged to you for the attention given to the wants of this army and the efforts made to supply them. Our absentees are returning, and I hope that earnest and beautiful appeal made to the country in your proclamation 
may stir up the whole people, and that they may see their duty and perform it. Nothing is wanted but their fortitude should equal their bravery to ensure the success of our cause. We must expect reverses, even defeats. They are sent to teach us wisdom and prudence, to call forth greater energies, and to prevent our falling into greater disasters. Our people have only to be true and united, to bear manfully and misfortunes incident to war, and all will come right in the end. I know how prone we are to censure and how ready to blame others for the non-fulfillment of our expectations. This is unbecoming in a generous people, and I grieve to see its expression. The general remedy for the want of success in a military command is his removal. This is natural, and in many instances proper. For, no matter what may be the ability of the officer, if he loses the confidence of his troops, disaster must sooner or later ensue. I've been prompted by these reflections more than once since my return from Pennsylvania to propose to Your Excellency the propriety of selecting another commander for this army. I've seen and heard of expressions of discontent in the public journals at the result of the expedition. I do not know how far this feeling extends in the army. My brother officers have been too kind to report it, and so far the troops have been too generous to exhibit it. It is fair, however, to suppose that it does exist, and success is so necessary to us that nothing should be risked to secure it. I therefore, in all sincerity, request Your Excellency to take measures to supply my place. I do this with the more earnestness, because no one is more aware than myself of the inability for the duties of my position. I cannot even accomplish what I myself desire. How can I fulfill the expectations of others? In addition, I sensibly feel the growing failure of my bodily strength. I have not yet recovered from the attack I experienced the past spring. I am becoming more and more incapable of exertion, and am thus prevented from making the personal examinations and giving the personal supervision to the operations in the field which I feel to be necessary. I am so dull that in making use of the eyes of others I am frequently misled. Everything, therefore, points to the advantages to be derived from a new commander, and I the more anxiously urge the matter upon your excellency from my belief that a younger and abler man than myself can readily be obtained. I know that he will have as gallant and brave an army as ever existed to second his efforts, and it would be the happiest day of my life to see at its head a worthy leader, one that would accomplish more than I could perform, and all that I have wished. I hope your excellency will attribute my request to the true reason, the desire to serve my country, and to do all in my power to ensure the success of her righteous cause. I have no complaints to make of anyone but myself. I have received nothing but kindness from those above me, and the most considerate attention from my comrades and companions in arms. To your excellency, I am specially indebted for uniform kindness and consideration. You have done everything in your power to aid me in the work committed to my charge, without amending anything to promote the general welfare. I pray that your effort may at length be crowned with success, and that you may long live to enjoy the thanks of a grateful people. So we have a couple of things to unpack here in Lee's letter. The first is that there are soldiers who were recovering from wounds, from sickness, who are returning to the Army, and that's part of the reason why the Army of Northern Virginia is able to become an effective fighting force once again. You know, they're going to expand the amount of individuals coming into the Army. You expand those age restrictions in terms of conscription and draft, but there's also going to be these veteran soldiers who are going to be returning to the ranks after the campaigning. So 
there are these numbers that are being built back up. So we do need to point that out. The other thing that I want to also point out is that Robert E. Lee is going to admit that his health is an issue, right? There are accounts of Lee in the beginning of the war and how he doesn't have this Granny Lee look to him. He's more of a vibrant officer. He doesn't have the gray hair. He doesn't look like a grandpa. He's some of these pictures that you see, but the strain of command is going to wear on him, obviously. And over time, you see this with presidents as well versus when they come into office and then when they leave, it's very drastic just how much stress can affect the way you look. And Lee is going to point out that he is having problems. And in 1864, there's going to be a key moment during the Overland campaign where maybe a healthy Lee would have been able to turn the tide on Grant and maybe stop him before he gets to Petersburg. In a more recent example, too, at Gettysburg, there are instances where Lee doesn't actually physically see where the army is going, right? Like, he can't go out there and check out the terrain in which they're going to be advancing over, and that's going to be an issue as well. So, we're going to read Jefferson Davis's reply. I can only imagine the reaction of the Confederate president when he sees Lee's resignation and how quickly he probably moved to respond after screaming aloud, No! Lee is going to be the best general we see during the Civil War, not only for battlefield tactics, but also for the culture of the army he creates. It is the aftermath of Gettysburg where I believe the objectives for the Union and the hopes for the Confederacy switch fully to the Army of Northern Virginia. Even with infrastructure and logistical objectives in a good spot, the Federals would need to destroy and defeat Lee to win the war. With that in mind, we have Davis's reply here. General, yours of the 8th instant has been received. I'm glad that you concur so entirely with me as to the wants of our country in this trying hour, and I'm happy to add that, after the first depression consequent upon our disasters in the West, indications have appeared that our people will exhibit that fortitude which we agree in believing is alone needful to secure ultimate success. It well became Cindy Johnson, when overwhelmed by a senseless clamor, to admit the rule that success is the test of merit, and yet there is nothing which I have found to require a greater effort of patience than to bear the criticisms of the ignorant who pronounce everything a failure which does not equal their expectations or desires, and can see no good result which is not in the line of their own imaginings. I admit the propriety of your conclusions that an officer who loses the confidence of his troops should have his position changed, whatever may be his ability. But when I read the sentence, I was not at all prepared for the application you are about to make. Expressions of discontent in the public journals furnish but little evidence of the sentiment of an army. I wish it were otherwise, even though all the abuse of myself should be accepted as the results of honest observation. Were you capable of stooping to it, you could easily surround yourself with those who would fill the press with your laudations and seek to exalt you for what you have not done, rather than detract from the achievements which you will make and your army the subject of history and object of the world's admiration for generations to come. I am truly sorry to know that you still feel the effects of the illness you suffered last spring and can readily understand the embarrassments you experience in using the eyes of others, having been so much accustomed to make your own reconnaissances. Practice will, however, do much to relieve that embarrassment, and the minute knowledge of the country which you have acquired will render you less dependent for topographical information. 
But suppose, my dear friend, that I were to admit, with all their implications, the points which you present, where am I to find that new commander, who is to possess the greater ability which you believe to be required? I do not doubt the readiness with which you would give away to one who could accomplish all you have wished, and you will do me the justice to believe that, if Providence should kindly offer such a person for our use, I would not hesitate to avail of his services. My sight is not sufficiently penetrating to discover such hidden merit if it exists, and I have but used you to the language of sober earnestness when I have impressed upon you the propriety of avoiding all unnecessary exposure to danger, because I felt your country could not bear to lose you. To ask me to substitute you by someone in my judgment more fit to command, or who would possess more of the confidence of the army, or of reflecting men in the country is to demand an impossibility. It only remains for me to hope that you will take all possible care of yourself, that your health and strength may be entirely restored, and that the Lord will preserve you for the important duties devolved upon you in the struggle of our suffering country for the independence of which we have engaged in war to maintain. So let's unpack a little bit of what Jefferson Davis is saying. And the big point I do think, the big takeaway from this response to Lee is that who else is he going to get to command the army? There is really no alternative that's going to perform as well as Lee would. And again, that goes back to what we were talking about, how Lee has this culture within his officers. He's cultivated it very carefully, something that we don't always think about. Even if you're a manager, you have to make sure that your team meshes well together. And Lee has done that with the Army of Northern Virginia. And some would argue at the expense of the Western armies because all the guys that he doesn't like get sent out there, right? But he does have a very good set of officers. They work well. He is trusting of them. They trust him. We have a lot of those different instances during the war where obviously his men very much adore him, even after uh what do you consider a failure and maybe even a disaster at Gettysburg, right? Here's the bottom line, though. Davis works well with Lee, mostly because Lee had taken the time to observe him early in the war while still an advisor. In some ways, I think this is an advantage that he holds over, say, Johnston or Beauregard. What's more is that I think Davis realizes that if they're going to pull things out, he's going to need Lee. And I think maybe Lee probably needs to hear that. I've seen in some sources where Lee doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to send a letter of resignation. But we need to remember that these are people, right? They have real emotions. They're real people. Everyone likes to hear that you're wanted or that you're needed. And this is probably a little bit of that, at least. Trying to get an answer just like this out of Davis that says, hey, nope, you're good to go. I'm not not going to bench you, not going to fire you, right? And now you have that kind of confidence that gets restored, and you can move on. July 13th, 1863, we have the New York draft riots. These would be the largest and most costly riots in American history, even more so than the later riots in the 1900s. But why exactly we have these Manhattan or Draft Week riots is an interesting storm of several factors coming together. We have mentioned in previous episodes that not everyone is happy with the war and the length of time is now taking. In the North, many were disenfranchised by the conflict. 
Reading about these major eastern battles with their casualty lists probably did not help that. It's often mentioned that the South is a lot like the American revolutionaries, and that it's not going to be necessarily win the war through conquest, but they could outlast the British, or in this case the North, and win that way. We've seen that sort of as a goal for Robert E. Lee. We just talked about Lee. That was his goal, trying to make sure we're turning the tables politically, and that ensures the Confederacy's survival. Either foreign intervention or a new presidential administration that values peace and probably ran on that platform would work for them. New York, if you remember, has a Democratic governor now, a blow to the Republicans at the midterm elections. But it also probably speaks to the amount of peace Democrats in that state, and subsequently the North in general. New York City, in particular, had a large Democratic population whose ranks were swelling with incoming immigrants, most of whom were Irish. Cotton had been a major part of the city's wealth during the antebellum years. If you think about it, that makes sense. Cotton being exported abroad, yes, but factories in the North could also benefit from this cash crop. There were already numerous feelings in the city that the juice was not worth the squeeze. So we have the foundation set, but let's talk about two really big events, those being the Emancipation Proclamation and the Draft. Now usually when we talk about the Civil War, the narrative is that the Union was superior in manufacturing and manpower. We mention this because it is certainly the case, but Lincoln needs to be able to maintain this manpower advantage in the face of declining enthusiasm for the war. Because of this, he is going to move forward with conscription, something we have talked about previous and something already instituted by the Confederacy. Even earlier in this episode, we talked about in these letters that Lee and Davis are sending, they're talking about how they're hoping that everybody is going to be able to do their country service, right? And this means the more people that they're bringing in the army that need to be in the army, whether they like it or not, and obviously that's going to increase the numbers that could ensure the survival of the Confederate States of America. As mentioned before, the draft was crooked in that it favored the rich to be able to get out of it. Who it did not favor were the poor, especially immigrants. The Emancipation Proclamation will also go into effect, and that would be number two. Democrats had been spreading the word that emancipation would put blacks into the job market, taking away the work for the lower class. Already in March of 1863, there had been tensions resulting in violence from the dock workers or longshoremen because of this. Combine that with the fact that blacks were not included in conscription, and you have the recipe for discord. While the proclamation is designed to take shots at the Confederate ability to wage war, it also makes the war one to end slavery. Not everyone was thrilled by this. The concept that not only will you lose your job, but you are going to be forced to fight in a war and possibly die for someone who is taking that job is going to be a hard pill to swallow for many in the North. And you could even take race off the table and it's still going to be a tough sell. One last factor would lead to the opening of the way for problems that was the Gettysburg Campaign. As we know, there was a scramble for militia units to be prepared to defend the North, and then form a large part of Meade's reinforcements after his ranks were depleted. New York City had been stripped of the majority of the militia forces for this purpose, leaving only small units and the police of the city to keep order. 
this lack of strength to keep any large-scale unrest would lead to disaster. July 11th would mark the first drawing of names for the draft. Remember that while Tammany Hall, the Democratic bastion, did pay some fees to exempt from service, the only way for you to get out of joining the army in a legal sense would be to give up a year's wage. Paying this amount or finding a substitute were options that many working class members did not have. A lottery would decide who was going to go, and leading up to the draw there would be much fanfare put into negative commentary from Democratic publications. One such publication would point out that a slave in the South cost around $1,000, while the working class of New York was being sold for $300. So obviously that's not going to go over well for racial tensions. The day after would go by without incident, but on the 13th, these tensions would boil over. Between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., mobs, made mostly of Irish workers, would start by targeting government and military installations. They would throw paving tiles through windows and otherwise unleash general destruction. This violence would soon turn toward black targets, however. I've seen estimates claim that at least nine were lynched during the riots, with more being beaten or stoned to death. The longshoremen would renew their violence from March with vigor, not only targeting black dock workers, but also seeking to take out the infrastructure that supported integration in that area. Businesses who served or supported blacks were subjected to the same violence unrolling in the city. Likewise, the homes of abolitionists were targets for the unruly masses. The New York Times was defended by a Gatling gun to keep the crowds at bay. The Black Children's Asylum, created for orphans, was burned down, fortunately with the children being removed. The asylum was reestablished a little outside of New York City, eventually becoming Harlem. Indeed, the fallout from the riots was that many black residents moved out of the city, the population dropping to the lowest since 1820. Some landlords would evict the residents for fear of violence and destruction of property. What would become Harlem would be a place they settled. I've seen a couple of reports saying that in the five points, there was actually very little violence. That's going to be contrary to what you may watch in Gangs of New York. But why exactly was that? The Five Points neighborhood was actually one of the more integrated neighborhoods in the city, and so the community would not join in or tolerate the rioting. John Wool would be sent with militia to keep order. Eventually, this militia and police would be joined by additional units sent from the Army of the Potomac to stop the riots. By July 17th, the situation was stabilized and the riots were over. It is estimated that 119 were killed, while maybe some 2,000 were injured during the five days of rioting and quelling. While there would be a regiment of black troops formed in the city in 1863, it would be some time before racial tension subsided, something that even surpasses the scope of our story here. So what exactly do we make of these draft riots? Obviously, as we mentioned, the big takeaway is that people are not happy something that we've been building up towards is this outpouring of violence showing that there are a lot of people who are dissatisfied kind of feeds into that it's a rich man's war being fought by the poor kind of attitude so there are all these kind of different layers that are being built up here that we can kind of see 
why this overflowed into violence. And yeah, the draft's not going to be well-received, but here's the thing is that it's not like that stops the draft. That's another big takeaway I think we can point out here is that there's going to be more men that are going to go into the army and there are going to be troops that, well, maybe they're not going to be the best troops and we've had several memoirs that have described that. There is going to be this influx of manpower that's going to be necessary to eventually winning the war. So that's actually another takeaway that we can probably get out of these draft riots too. We can call it a day there for now though. This episode, we talked a little bit about Lee and his attempted resignation. We read his letter and then the reply from Jefferson Davis to see the exact language used in this exchange. Also included was the New York Draft Riots, an event made famous by the 1920 book and then movie Gangs of New York. While maybe not the most historically accurate account, there was a gang called the Dead Rabbits, and there were other gangs including the Plug Uglies from Baltimore who wished to move north and join in on the violence. Next week, we will continue our discussion of Lee and his command, and then take a look at the makeups of enlistment for not only troops in the Indian Territory, but also United States Colored Regiments. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>